Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. When God answers our prayer, this is what we ought to do. Daniel prays the God of heaven. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Not just taking it for granted, but just pausing and, and thanking God. And in Daniel's case here, reflecting on the sovereignty of God, who God is. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Daniel chapter 2. Now, here's Pastor Brian. All right. Welcome once again. Let's open up to Daniel chapter 2. So as we pick up in the second chapter of Daniel, maybe, maybe you remember at the end of the first chapter, we read there that Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they entered into the service of the king. So now they've gone through all of their training and they've been found to be wiser and more understanding than all of the others. So they are now brought into this very elite group of advisors to the king. So in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. That sounds pretty reasonable. Then the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you don't tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Now that sounds pretty unreasonable, but it sounds pretty smart too, because the king obviously suspected that they would not give him a legitimate interpretation. So isn't that funny? I mean, here, you know, here's a guy, he's got all of these, all these wise men in his court, but he's suspicious that they're all a bunch of phonies. I mean, that's really what's in the back of his mind. So he doesn't trust them. So he says, okay, here's how I'm I'm gonna know that you actually can tell me what the dream means. You're gonna have to tell me what the dream was. Now, once more they replied, let the king tell his servants a dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time 
because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. So that's it. He's like, I know what you're gonna try to do and I know you're stalling and you're gonna hope that this just passes, but he's, he's pressing in on them. Just one little technical thing to note here. From chapter one through chapter two of verse three, it is in Hebrew. When you come to verse four of chapter two, the language switches to Aramaic. Now, Aramaic was the language of the Babylonians. Hebrew, of course, was the language of the Hebrews. The, the languages are very similar to each other, but the language switches at the fourth verse of the second chapter, and it goes all the way through the seventh chapter. So from two, four, to the end of seven is Aramaic in the original text. And then at the end of seven, you come to chapter eight and you then go back to Hebrew. And the question that people have asked, of course, is why? Why would that be the case? And it seems that it's that way because the from two, four through seven, all of these things that transpire happen in the context of Babylon and pertain to Babylon. And so it's like God has given the Babylonians in their own language, his word, so they can comprehend and understand it. When we get to the eighth chapter, then we move away from Babylon and we move back into the things that pertain primarily to Israel. So you, you've probably heard it said, that the Bible, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, true, and the New Testament is written in Greek, true, but there are portions of Aramaic in the Old Testament, and this is the main section uh, where there is Aramaic here. Now, again, this is a little bit of a side note, but um, so many scholars believe that when the Jews came back from the Babylonian captivity, they had lost their Hebrew and they had adopted Aramaic. And so they came back speaking Aramaic. And so that, I mean, that's kind of a common belief among scholars, but I'm not totally sure that that is the case. I mean, certainly they would have brought back Aramaic, they would have learned it. And there are many New Testament words that are Aramaic words. But the New Testament itself implies or actually uses the term Hebrew when it's speaking about the language of the Jews. It's the Greek text says that it's the Hebrew language. So Paul says he heard Jesus speaking to him in the Hebrew language. Now, almost every Bible especially all the newer translations will say they will replace Hebrew with Aramaic. They'll just put in there with the, in the Aramaic language. But the Greek actually says in the Hebrew language. And so 
this is one of those little, you know, pet peeves that I have where I think, well, if, if this theory is accurate that the Jews lost Hebrew in Babylon, then why in the post-exilic prophets, the prophets who prophesied after the Babylonian captivity, why did they write their prophecies in Hebrew? <laughs> because they are in Hebrew, they're not in Aramaic. So sometimes I think, uh, all that to say, you know, I'm all for scholars. Scholars, uh, we, we depend on them a lot. But sometimes I just feel like, you know, some of them overstep their bounds and they just get into this sort of mentality that, well, this is the way it had to be. And I like to just push back on that a little bit and say, well, let's, let's think about that. Did it really have to be that way? So that, that is a total tangent, has nothing to do with Daniel. It's just a little rant that I wanted to go off on for a moment. So let's go back to the story here. So the astrologers, verse 10, answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such things of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. So these guys are just <laughs> admitting no one can do what you're asking to be done. And remember last week, we talked about how, again, certain scholars, they dispute the dating of Daniel. They try to put it in the Maccabean period, which is the 160s BC. Because to them, it, it can't be prophecy. It has to be history. It has to be written after all of these things took place because no one could possibly know in advance the details of what took place. So it had to be written after the events. But the scholar who adopts that view does so, as I pointed out, because of rationalism, because of a disbelief in the miraculous. So they just say, well, that would be a miracle and we don't believe in miracles. Now, the crazy thing is that these are, these are Bible scholars. These are, you know, theologians. Now, let me, let me just clarify. There, there are many great Bible scholars and there are many great theologians, but there's, there's a, a, a camp of scholars who are, who have embraced a theologically liberal position and a disbelief in the miraculous. So they want to relegate this book to the second century BC. They wanna say it was written by an unknown writer who took the name of Daniel, but it wasn't actually the Daniel that lived in the fifth century. But they were right about one thing. These guys were right about this, that no one can do this except the gods. So these guys, they were astrologers, they were soothsayers, they were enchanters, but at least they believed that there were gods that could tell the future. The modernist theologians don't believe in that supernatural. 
But that is the case. No human being can know these things. So this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Wow. So this, this is where you see the power of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a law to himself. There is no law that governs Nebuchadnezzar. He is uh, completely an autocrat. He is, the law stops with, he is the ultimate law. So he orders all of his wise men to be executed. And the decree went out. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So they were in that group of men that were now sentenced to death by Nebuchadnezzar. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Now, let's just remember, we don't know the exact age of Daniel, but almost everybody guesses that he was between 18 and, say, 21 years old at this time. So he's a young guy. This group of wise men that he's a part of, there, there would be men in this group that were, they were very elderly. And they had been there through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar's father and the, his grandfather. And so here, here is just uh, this upstart, just this young kid. And he's not even a Babylonian. He's a Jew. He's, he was a captive of Judah. And yet Daniel, by faith, takes this step and he goes before the king. And he asks for the king to give him time that he might interpret the dream. Now, I was reading one commentator and he said, how, how could Daniel have even thought to do this? Or how could he have had the, the wherewithal to, to do this? Or what would have given him the faith to think that God would honor what he was doing here? And well, first of all, you have what we read about in the first chapter. In the first chapter, remember Daniel, he is dedicating himself to God. He's refusing the king's delicacies. He doesn't want to defile himself with any of that. He is going to, there in that place, even though he's had his name changed, even though he's been educated in the court of the Babylonians, he's going to retain his faith regardless. And so, of course, that gives us a little bit of insight into why he would have this kind of courage. He knew that God had already been with him, that God had already given him favor. But he also knew the scriptures. And he knew the story of another king who had troubling dreams. 
and of a young Hebrew who was given the interpretation to those dreams. He knew the story of Joseph. And that would have been his, I think that would have been his inspiration. Well, God, you, you did this in, in, the time with, in the time of Joseph in Egypt with Pharaoh. And so you can do this now here in Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. And that's how we should all think when it comes to the, the situations that we find ourselves in at times, the predicaments, whatever they might be. You know, think in your mind, where in scripture is there, is there something like this? And Lord, I want to just lay hold of, you know, that, that thing you did for whoever it might be, Abraham or Mary or Peter or whoever it might be. Lord, I remember that story. I want, I want to just, I want to apply that truth to the, this circumstance that I am in right this moment. Some years ago, I was in the midst of this situation and the way all these things were going, it was reminding me of a biblical story, but I couldn't remember which story it was. And I was thinking, I was kind of racking my brain, like, okay, what does this remind me of? And, and all of a sudden it struck me. And it, was, it reminded me of the story of Isaac and Esau and Jacob. And in, in that particular part of the story, it, I think, you know, if we know our Bibles a little bit, we know the story of how the promise of God was to Jacob he was going to bless the younger rather than the older. But Isaac was committed to blessing Esau. And through the influence of the mother, Rebekah, Jacob and Rebekah fooled Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob rather than to Esau. But Esau, the reason he was the favored of Isaac was because he, he made this really great roast. <laughs> and he was an outdoorsman. And, and the text in, in Genesis tells us that, that that's why, you know, Isaac set his heart on Esau because he loved the venison that he would make him. And he loved the fact that he was an outdoorsman and he loved that he would come back smelling like uh, the field. And, you know, Isaac just loved that. And so because of that, he's going to give away the blessing that God has reserved for Jacob. So, so Jacob and Rebecca, Rebecca comes up with a scheme, Jacob carries it out. But what Jacob and Rebecca did was, was it was wrong. So anyway, <laughs> in this scenario in my own life, as, as all of this stuff is going on, and all of a sudden it dawns on me, oh my gosh, this is the story. It's obviously different players and different circumstances, but very similar kind of a thing to what's happening. And as it dawns on me what is going on and how I connected it with this story, just as quickly as I made the connection, the Lord said this to me, but don't do what Jacob did. <laughs> and I was like, gotcha, okay. 
I, I get it. I know. <laughs> so, but but I, I just remember it was one of these things where I'm, I'm, you know, this whole scenario, I'm looking at it, it's like, gosh, this just seems so familiar. Where have I heard this story before? Where have I seen this before? Oh, I saw it in Genesis. So as we go through our lives as Christians, and I, I love this passage. I quote this frequently. It's uh, Romans 12, 4. And it says, or 15, 4, sorry. Romans 15, 4. It says, the things that were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience that are given to us through the scriptures and the comfort that comes to us, that through those things, we might have hope. And I love that. So these stories are, they're there for us to draw from, just as Daniel undoubtedly at this moment was drawing from the story of Joseph back in Genesis. So Daniel, verse 17, he returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel says, you pray. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. We've seen a lot of, you know, it, this is really good. We've seen a lot of prayers answered lately. It's been really good. And let's keep praying. Let's not stop. Let, let's remember God is working. He's at work. The Lord's hearing our prayers. And he does hear our prayers. And he heard the prayers of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah way back then. And he revealed to Daniel the mystery. And so Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And you know, when God answers our prayer, this is what we ought to do. Daniel praised the God of heaven. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Not just taking it for granted, but just pausing and, and thanking God. And in Daniel's case here, reflecting on the sovereignty of God, who God is. Now, as I pointed this out last time, the theme of Daniel, the theological theme that runs through this book is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God if you don't know what that term means, it means God's rule, that God is the one who rules over all. That regardless of what it looks like on earth, God is actually the one who's ruling. December, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, Is Christmas Unbelievable? 
Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's easy for the holiday season to draw our attention to shopping, parties, programs, and events, while the Christmas story is relegated to the statue of a myth or fairy tale for children. But is the Christmas story actually grounded in history? Well, in her book, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story, Rebecca McLaughlin tackles four basic questions surrounding Christmas. She deals with the questions surrounding if Jesus was a historical figure, if we can take seriously the historical accounts of the gospel, and if the virgin birth can actually be believed, and why it all matters. If you know a person who is skeptical that the Christmas story is true, or if you are a skeptic yourself, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the World's Most Famous Story by Rebecca McLaughlin. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Daniel. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.